passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, This morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Genesis, and we are in Genesis chapter 39. And as we, uh, I invite you to turn to that page, or to that chapter. Uh, As as you're turning there, I I just wanted to uh, share something that many of you probably are aware of, and that is I really enjoy movies. I really enjoy watching movies. It's not just for the enjoyment uh, actually, the, the reason why I like movies so much is because I love looking at them and trying to ask or answer the question, what is this movie trying to teach me? What is this movie trying to convince me of? Every movie, every book, every story is painting a picture of human flourishing. Sometimes these stories are are really the same uh, picture that the Bible paints of what it means to flourish as humans. But more often than not, it paints an alternative view. It tells us of a different gospel, if you will, a different way to find success, meaning, significance in this life that's other than what the Bible teaches us. And honestly, most of the time, it's the quote-unquote cleanest movies that can be the most guilty of being unbiblical. Now, you could probably imagine that this uh, pet hobby of mine has led to a a few disagreements between Crystal and I when it comes to watching movies. Um, Like most normal people, she just wants to watch a movie and enjoy it. Um, I want to analyze it through this sort of lens. And I remember when we were first dating, uh, we, we sat down to watch, watch a movie, and she picked out a movie that, that she said was a really great movie. It was a movie she really enjoyed. Three minutes in, I got up to go to the bathroom, and she gets all confused and concerned. She's like, what's wrong? And I said, oh, oh, don't worry. I, I already know how this movie's going to turn out. I can tell you, based off of the three, first three minutes, what this movie's going to be about. And so I, I proceeded to say, this is how the movie... Uh, is going to end. And I was right. And (laughs) we stopped watching that movie. And for a long time, we stopped watching movies altogether. Uh, I would recommend uh, that you don't, don't, don't do that. Uh, Learn from my mistake uh, when it comes to this analytical view of movies. And you might be saying, well, what on earth is Jordan talking about? Why is he bringing this up at the beginning of this morning's text? And the reason I bring this up is because one of the most well-known storylines, one of the most well-known motifs in stories, not just in movies, but in books as well, is the rags-to-riches story. This is what the the movie Rocky is really all about. It's a rags-to-riches story. It is a a man who is kind of basically on the verge of living on the streets of Philadelphia who has his chance at fame. And even though he loses, he actually wins. And it's this motivational story that uh, has, presumed, has, has created one of the most inspiring soundtracks of all time that is now pretty much done by every pep, dan- pep band under the sun. Uh, so that's, a, that's an example of this rags to riches story. Aladdin. Another movie that is about rags to riches. A kid that lives on the street becomes a part of the royal family. 
This rags to riches story is so popular. That's why we see American Idol succeeding. Uh, The X Factor, America's Got Talent, all of these different types of reality TV shows thrive on our desire to see a rags to riches story come true. And I think oftentimes we can read the book of Genesis, specifically the story of Joseph, through this lens. We can look at the story of of Joseph as a rags-to-riches story. In fact, the uh, popular Andrew Lloyd Webber musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat does exactly that. It looks at the story of Joseph as a rags-to-riches story. It says that if you work hard enough... If you are good enough, if you are nice to people, even when they are mean to you, things will work out for you in the end. I'm not casting judgment on that musical, because how often do we look at life the exact same way? How often do we look at life, approach life with the the mindset of that we just work hard? If we just keep our noses clean, if we try to honor God, the nice things are going to happen to us. And indeed, there's some truth to that. There's some truth to the fact that when we work hard, things oftentimes do work out well for us. That God does indeed honor those who honor him with their lives. And yet at the same time, we have to recognize that God's wonderful plan for our lives, which is, which is a true statement, God does have a wonderful plan for our lives. But oftentimes, His wonderful plan for our lives does not at all line up with our wonderful plan for our lives. One pastor writes it this way, When we discover what God is up to in our lives, we discover that His good plan is not a plan for our ease and comfort, but rather for our death and resurrection, that we would die to sin, that we would die to our old self, and that we would rise to a whole new life in him. Friends, that's what the story of Joseph is really about. The story of Joseph is not ultimately about the American dream. It's not ultimately about rags to riches. It's instead about God's faithfulness to his people and his commitment to make them more like him. I'll be honest, it is easy to turn this story of Joseph into a rags to riches story. Last uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of this story. We saw that Joseph was thrown in a pit. He's sold as a slave into Egypt, and he works his way up the ladder and becomes the highest position in this house, but he's still a slave, and then he gets thrown into prison. Again, he works his way up all the way to the top of the prison, and then he's forgotten for two years. And yet, in an amazing turn of events, he becomes the second in command of all of Egypt. It is literally rags to literal riches. In fact, if we're being honest and we want to look at Joseph through this lens, it is a story of riches to rags to riches to rags to riches to rags to a ton of riches. But that's not primarily what this story is about. It reminds us of God's faithfulness. It reminds us that God's presence is constant in the midst of the good, 
in the midst of the bad, and in the midst of temptation. God is with Joseph. And the good news for us this morning is that God is also with you too. Let's jump into Genesis 39, starting in verse 1, to see just how God is with Joseph. Start with the first verse. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. Let's stop right here for a second. The beginning of Genesis 39 starts where Genesis 37 left off. We have Joseph, who was once the favored son of Jacob, now serving as a slave to a pagan who worships the son named Potiphar. This is a shocking turn of events here. But I think even more shocking than what has happened to Joseph is actually Joseph's response to his circumstances. If we look at Genesis 39, if we look at Genesis 40, Genesis 41, all of the time where Joseph is in the midst of the darkest times of his life, Joseph never once responds with bitterness. Never once in all of this, Joseph brings up a complaint. that We never sense self-pity from Joseph. If anyone had the right to complain, it was Joseph. If anyone had the right to feel sorry for themselves, it was Joseph. And yet Joseph does not respond this way. Honestly, I would. Just being honest with you, if I went through what Joseph experienced, I probably would have responded with some bitterness. But not Joseph. Joseph responds and remains faithful to God, and he trusts God in the pit. You might be saying, well, how? How on earth does Joseph do this? After all that Joseph has experienced, how is Joseph able to remain faithful to God? How is he able to continue to trust in God? I know from my own personal experience, when I'm faced with an unexpected, unexpected car repair payment, it throws my entire world into uh, uh, an off-kilter orbit. So how is it that Joseph is able to remain so faithful? Honestly, if we look at Joseph, it's not just admiration. There's also this disbelief with his response to God, that he can trust God in the midst of all that has happened to him. He's nearly been murdered by his brothers. The ones that he grew up playing catch with have sold him into slavery. And now he's all alone, hundreds of miles away from home, with no rights, no chance to escape the nightmare of slavery that is his for the rest of his life life. How on earth does Joseph remain faithful? The key is found in Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, Joseph has these dreams. He has these dreams that one day he will ascend to a position of authority over his brothers. Two weeks ago, we looked at how God gave Joseph these dreams as a way, uh, as a catalyst of sorts to get him into the pit to make his brothers mad enough that they would even contemplate murder. But we also see that these dreams are a reassurance from God of what is about to come. 
They were a reminder to Joseph of God's presence. They were God's words of hope for Joseph. Remember, this is before the Bible is written. It's before the Old Testament is written. He's experiencing this. He's living this. And he doesn't have what we have today, where we have God's word. And God knew exactly what was coming for Joseph. And so he gave him words to hold on to, to cling to, to trust in God, to give him a glimmer of hope. That's how Joseph made it through. He continued to trust in God's confidence, or in his promises, that God would keep his word. Joseph may have not have had any idea how that would work out when he was being drugged by Ishmaelites into Egypt as a slave. He may not have had any idea how God would fulfill his promise to him when he was treated like dirt in Potiphar's family. But he had a deep, rock-solid confidence in God's promise. And that meant that it didn't matter what his circumstances were because God was trustworthy. Just take a moment. Do you believe the same is possible in our lives? Do you believe that the same sort of confidence is possible in our lives? Because the reality is we've been given more than just two dreams. We've been given infinitely more than Joseph was. We've been given infinitely better promises. We've seen God's promises fulfilled again and again and again and again in Scripture. And yet we so often are prone to forget. We're so often prone to have our circumstances crowd out our vision of God and what God is doing in our lives. We are so often prone to fix our eyes on our our problems, our pain, our discomfort, our present circumstances, rather than on God and on his purposes. Friends, this same sort of confidence that we see from Joseph, this same sort of faithfulness is indeed possible for us. It's going to be hard, but it is possible because God is with Joseph And God is with us as well. Let's keep reading. Verse 2, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. These verses here remind us that God is with Joseph. We have no idea if Joseph sensed God's presence. No idea if he could emotionally feel close to God, but he knew God was with him. Now notice the name of God that's used here. The name is the Lord. This is, this is significant for us to catch. This is a special name of God that is used to refer to his faithfulness to his people. Calling God the Lord, his, his special covenant name, It's found nowhere else in Joseph's life story, except here. It's found here, when Joseph is in the pit of despair. It is a reminder that God is with Joseph, that God will remain faithful to Joseph because God is Joseph's God. God is the Lord. 
And again, as His people, the same is true for us. God will not abandon us. God will not forget us. He is faithful. He is committed to us. He is the unchanging one. He is the rock on which we stand. His love does indeed endure forever. No matter what faces us, God is with us. Even Potiphar sees this. It's apparent to Potiphar that God is with Joseph because everything's going so well for Joseph. Let's keep reading verse 4. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made Joseph overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From, that, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. What starts out poorly for Joseph actually turns out to be pretty good considering the circumstances. He's not at home. He's not with his family. He's not with his father. But there's hope. Things have begun to turn around for Joseph. He begins to work his way up from the bottom all the way to the top of Potiphar's household. Some scholars even believe that Joseph worked his way out of slavery here in Potiphar's household. God was indeed with Joseph. But then comes Potiphar's wife. And we're all familiar with what comes next. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. As I mentioned, this is the most popular or most well-known part of the story of Joseph. Joseph is so good-looking, just like his mother Rachel, remember, that people began to notice. Joseph is the entire package. Let's be honest. He's the entire package. He looks good. He's got a good work ethic. He's extremely humble. He's got these natural, innate leadership skills, and he's successful. Tie that all together, and it's just too much for Potiphar's wife to handle. You see, ancient slavery, uh, the slaves had no rights. What their masters said, they had to do. They were often abused. And there was nothing that they could do about it. It's natural for Potiphar's wife to expect to be able to use Joseph, for Joseph to uh, obey her request and her command. Honestly, Potiphar probably had had his way with a number of slave girls, and so she is just trying to do the exact same thing with Joseph. But Joseph refuses. Potiphar's wife gives this short command. She says, lie with me. And, and Joseph responds with this long explanation, this detailed explanation of why he cannot. 
We're going to come back to this in a moment, but just notice the reason. The ultimate reason is found at the very end. It's because he cannot and will not sin against God. This wasn't just a one-time thing for Joseph, though. The text tells us that this happened day after day. When we compile Joseph's life, we look at the fact that he is in in Egypt, before he ascends to second in command in Egypt, he's, he's there for about 17 years. Without a doubt, this took place month after month, possibly year after year. Every single day, this woman is asking Joseph to lie with her. And through it all, Joseph remains steadfast in his commitment. How many of you have that same sort of resolve? Especially in the, in the cultural setting of the expectation as a slave to obey. Yes, we can resist once, twice, three times, four times, a dozen times, but day after day. The faithfulness here of Joseph is something that honestly many of us cannot fathom. And here's the worst part about it. Joseph couldn't do a single thing about it. He had no choice but to continue to face his temptation every single day. He was a slave. He had no rights. He had to do his job. He had to face Potiphar's wife every single day. And you might be saying, you know what? That kind of sounds familiar to my own situation. Whenever I go to work, I am tempted Every single day, my coworkers have language, have mouths that is just atrocious. They would make the most seasoned person blush. Day after day after day, I am faced with the temptation and the pressure to keep up the guard on my tongue. And day after day after day, it becomes more difficult. It would almost be second nature to just join in the gossip to join in the cursing, to join in the slander of those who are around us. Similarly, others of you might find yourself uh, in a work setting where your coworkers have no qualms sharing about their sexual conquests, whether that is real or it is just imaginary. It takes a Herculean effort to guard your eyes, to guard your hearts from these temptations. Another vein, maybe you struggle with self-injury. Literally impossible for you to escape this temptation because you are the temptation. Escaping it day after day is one thing, but standing strong over the course of months and years seems impossible, especially when no one else really understands the battle you face. Or another temptation. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mother. Maybe you're a retiree and every day you're faced with the temptation to watch daily talk time television shows, to resort to idleness, to resist for a few days and then to eventually give in. How can you stay strong? How can you remain focused and faithful on God? How does Joseph do it? Well, the text is clear. It's not because Joseph avoided temptation here. He couldn't avoid his circumstances. The key for Joseph, and honestly the key for us this morning, is to be acutely aware of God's presence. Acutely aware of God's presence. Even more than that, it's, it's uh, uh, this desire 
for God's presence that has to be greater than the desire to succumb to temptation. Honestly, if we struggle with sin, we are not going to be able to defeat it by cutting it out of our lives. You will never be able to ultimately defeat sin in your life by just trying to get rid of it, to cut it out of your life. Your only hope in defeating sin and conquering sin in your life is to replace it with something greater, to replace it with a desire for God, to desire God more than the things of this world. For Joseph, he had to desire God and have that be a higher desire than his desire to avoid the hardship to avoid the unpleasantries facing him day after day. His love for God was greater than whatever life could throw at him. His desire for God's promise was greater than his desire for revenge. And because of this, Joseph resisted temptation. Honestly, when we succumb to temptation, if we're just being honest with ourselves, at the end of the day, it's because we wanted to. It's because we wanted to at the end of the day. Yes, there are some underlying factors that can make our decision easier or harder, but at the end of the day, it is our own hearts that are at fault. Jesus once declared, then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus nails just about any and everything right there. When we succumb to sin, it comes from within. We give in to temptation because we want to, because something other than God rules our hearts. And conversely, we overcome temptation. We avoid temptation because we have a heart that loves God more. That's the key to Joseph's success right here. And it's the key to our own success as well. Pick up in verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in here to me to, to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her, by her, until her master came home, excuse me, his master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of his house. After months, possibly years, of this situation going on, Joseph is finally jumped by Potiphar's wife, and his response is admirable. He runs as fast as he possibly can, leaves the scene as fast as he possibly can. 
Here's the irony. Joseph, in his zeal to honor God, actually leads to his own undoing. Joseph probably could have gotten away with this if he was less interested in honoring God, if he would have stayed, struggled for a while, and grabbed his cloak from her. In the end of the day, Joseph is so focused on avoiding this situation that he leaves the scene and it leads to his own doing, own undoing. An English poet from the 1600s once said, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And Joseph is about to experience that firsthand. So Potiphar's wife paints a, a picture to put herself in a good light and to accuse Joseph of rape. And she twists the circumstances to make herself look good. She's the first Ryan Lochte. And she spins this circumstance to, to her servants and prepares herself for her husband later on. If you read this, you can see how she sets the scene to make it as infuriating as possible. She takes the garment and she leaves it right beside her in the bed. She continues to stay in bed. It's to emphasize the fact that this was an assault that took place in their most precious and special place. How does Potiphar respond? Verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Joseph is thrown into prison for doing absolutely nothing, is enslaved for doing nothing, first of all, and now he's in prison for being exemplary in his character. God is present with his people, but he does not always protect them from the sins and the consequences of other people's sins. You see, here's the interesting part. In that day and age, attempted assault, especially by a slave to a master, would have resulted in immediate execution. Immediate execution. No questions asked. That's what Joseph deserved based off of this accusation. And yet Potiphar throws him in prison instead. Potiphar clearly doesn't trust his wife. He wants to hold on to the hope that Joseph is really his good, beloved servant. He doesn't want to kill Joseph without more evidence coming to light. And so he spares him. What's more than that, apparently this prison is under Potiphar's guard. Take a look at how Potiphar is described in verse 1 here. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, notice this phrase, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian. Well, that's, that's all we need to read. Now notice in the next chapter, verse 3, says this, And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. Apparently what has happened with Potiphar and Joseph is that Potiphar has taken him and he has moved him from his position in his house to a prison that Joseph, or excuse me, that Potiphar oversees. He wants to keep an eye on Joseph to see if he can free him at a later date. So just because things get bad for Joseph doesn't mean that they get completely awful. There's still a bit of grace here for Joseph because of his exemplary character. 
But that doesn't mean that things are easy for Joseph either. Ancient prisons were absolutely brutal. Psalm 105, when talking about Joseph, says this, his feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron. Joseph has found himself in chains once more. And honestly, now Joseph has probably an even greater temptation than he faced with Potiphar's wife, the temptation to despair. Joseph has been nothing but exemplary. He's been faithful in honoring God in every single thing that he has done. He has worked from the bottom to the top in his circumstances, and now he is back at the bottom again. It would be so easy to despair. And yet he continues to trust God, the God who shows him steadfast love. And the text reassures us that God is with Joseph once more, verses 21 through the end of the chapter. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Joseph is faithful in the best circumstances and in the worst circumstances. But I think what's even more important than that is that God is faithful to Joseph. If you were to sum up today's chapter, just put it in one sentence, I think it would be this. In every season, God remains. In every season, God remains. Whether you're in the good times of life, the bad times of life, the ups of life, the downs of life, whether you're being faithful to God or whether you're being distant from God, God's love for you remains. God's faithfulness toward you remains. God's patience with you remains. He is with us in every season, no matter how good or how bad we are. He is always with his children. See, here's the thing. When we read the story of Joseph, it's, it's really easy for us to look at it and say, well, of course God was with Joseph. Just look at Joseph in this passage. Every single thing Joseph has happened to him, he takes it in stride and says, God is all that I need. There's no hints of doubt, no hints of frustration, of pain, uh, of sin. And of course, God is with him because of his faithfulness to God. But the reality is, I am not Joseph. I continue to fall. I continue to screw up, to turn my back on God. How can you say with confidence that God is with me? Well, here's the reason. God is with Joseph, his presence with Joseph, his active involvement in Joseph's life, walking side by side with Joseph is not because Joseph is faithful to God. It is because God is faithful to Joseph. There's this word at the end of chapter 39 that is the most important word in this chapter. It is the most important word in the entire Old Testament. Verse 21 says this, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Steadfast love. This word in Hebrew is one of the hardest words to translate. 
It's hard to translate into English because it is absolutely impossible to find just one word or one concept that sums up this word. This word, chesed, refers to God's love for his people. It refers to God's eternal love for his people, that it will never be shaken or removed no matter what. It refers to God's unwavering commitment to his people. No matter what we do, no matter what life throws at us, God's love and his faithfulness remain for us. It refers to God's kindness. It refers to God's faithfulness in overlooking our sins. No matter how far we have strayed, how, no matter how stained our hands may seem, God's faithfulness, his kindness to us in forgiving sin remains. It is this love, this eternal love, this unwavering commitment, this unending willingness to forgive our sin that is shown to Joseph in the pit. And it is that same love that is shown to us at the cross. It is at the cross that we see eternal love for rebellious sinners like you and me. It is at the cross that we see Jesus paying the price that you or I could not pay so that we could be adopted to be God's children. It is at the cross that we see Jesus cut off from this steadfast love of God so that we will never be cut off. What is it that motivates God to walk side by side with Joseph, to never leave Joseph, to be with him when the whole world is against him? It's not Joseph. It's God's commitment to him. The same thing is true for us. What motivates God to walk side by side with us, to be with us in the good and in the bad and the highs and the lows, to be close to us when we are far from him? It is not our faithfulness, but it is God's faithfulness to us. It is this commitment, this walking side by side, that is the motivation for Joseph's own faithfulness. It is the reality of God's presence with him that spurs him to be the best slave he could possibly be in Potiphar's house. It is this that strengthens him against the constant onslaught of temptation from Potiphar's wife. It is this reality of God's presence that strengthens Joseph in the midst of despair in prison. And the same thing is true for us. Jesus, his last words on earth, confidently declared, Behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus will never leave us. He will never forsake us. In every season, God remains. Now, I want you to just imagine what this would look like what this would look like if we just let this sink in. If we reminded ourselves of this gift each and every day. I think living in the confidence of God's presence would change our interactions with God. It would certainly change our interactions with God. It would lead to a, a deeper relationship with Him. That it wouldn't be born out of duty or of an image that we have to keep up in front of others, but instead out of a desire to know God. Living in the confidence of God's presence would also change our interactions with families as well. Husbands and wives would be patient with one another. 
They would do all that they could to point to Jesus with their words and their actions. Mothers and fathers would take hold of the great responsibility to instill that same confidence within their children, to speak of God's presence in the good and in the bad, to live lives that are accountable to God and conscience, conscious of his presence. And for children, it would look like them answering God's calling to love their brothers and sisters no matter their age and to love their moms and dads just like Jesus loves them. Living in a confidence of God's presence would affect the way that we do our work. No matter how difficult our coworkers or our bosses, no matter how much we like or dislike our jobs, no matter how much or how little we are being paid, no matter how thankful it seems that our jobs actually are, we could be confident that God was with us and that God wants to use us just the same way that he used Joseph to be a blessing to those who are around us. And living in the, in the confidence of God's presence changes the way we respond to hardship. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we can resist temptation to despair and anything else. If we trust that God's presence is with us, we will be faithful. In every season, God's presence remains with us. I pray that like Joseph, we can rest in that truth, that we can hold on to that truth, that we can cling to it and not let it go. And like Joseph, I pray that we can see that this truth is of a greater value than anything that the world can give us. And like Joseph, I pray that we could seek to honor God in every season, in the good and in the bad, because he is faithful to us. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that even when we are unfaithful, you are so often faithful. Your faithfulness is never ending, and we are so very humbled by that and thankful for that. We ask that you would help us to stir our hearts to love you more, to know you more, to seek you in everything that we do. God, forgive us for the ways that we turn our backs on you that we run after the world than rather than run after you. I pray that the life of Joseph would be a stirring reminder to us of your faithfulness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.